Welcome to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. It's Eugene Hernandez here on day three of the New York Film Festival and our daily podcast from this year's festival. In a moment, we're going to have the audio from a panel discussion about cinematography. We'll get to that in a minute, uh, but before we get there, I'm sitting here with my colleague Dan Sullivan, one of the programmers here at Film at Lincoln Center. Welcome, Dan. Good to be here, Eugene. <laughs> nice to see you. For this, uh, for this session, we thought we would introduce the audio from this panel today by talking a little bit about the retrospective that we're doing um, at this year's festival. Before we get to that, though, um, Dan, I want to ask you just a little bit about yourself and your own relationship to this year's, uh, I should say, to the New York Film Festival. Uh, tell us about your own connection to the festival, how long have you been going here and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, um, when I uh, first moved to New York uh, after... Uh, graduating from college um, nearly 10 years ago now, the first screening I think I, yeah, I think the first screening I went to upon moving to New York was Film Socialism in the main slate of, uh, I guess that would have been like uh, NYFF uh, 48. But yeah, no, so I've, you know, I've uh, been around for the better part of the past decade just watching. Um, the festival developed sort of the end of uh, Richard Pena's uh, tenure as the director of the of the festival and then on to uh, the Kent Jones years, which are now uh, sadly drawing to a close. Uh, but I'd like to think that we're ending uh, uh, on a good on a good note uh, on a bang or something along those lines. Thanks. Yeah. Um, but in any event, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, what, what can you say about the New York Film Festival? Uh, it's yeah. <laughs> well, what do you think? What do you think before we dive into our topic? What do you think it is that, from your perspective, um, what do you think distinguishes this festival? You, as a programmer, travel to a lot of festivals. You um, are certainly um, not only involved with many of the festivals and screenings we do here at Lincoln Center, but you're certainly monitoring what's happening out in the world. Um, what, what what distinguishes this festival for you? Um, well, practically speaking, where it falls in the calendar it's towards the end of the year so it's um you know so one of its primary functions becomes sort of summing up what the year in cinema um has has been like um what we think is uh is most relevant most interesting sort of the you know the trying to highlight the films and filmmakers that uh we think uh are kind of the most significant to uh to 2019 um so I, I i guess yeah the sort of like um summing up the year uh angle just seems really important to me but also um you know with with some exceptions this kind of uh, uh de-emphasis on um this kind of like industrial sort of uh market-based uh um model that a lot of festivals uh have um and you know it seems to uh, work for them. But I like that the New York Film Festival feels like uh, something different. It's a little, uh, yeah, less of a less of a market and more of a sort of um, long 17-day uh, celebration of, of cinema. And um, yeah, I think uh, it's, you know, these days it's nice to be able to celebrate something. So I <laughs> agree with you on that. One of the things that I've always appreciated about this festival is that it not only engages with um, the present of cinema and certainly for audiences what's to come in the future from films they might be seeing in their local theater or uh, at other places um, in the next 
few weeks, a few months. But a big part of it also is looking back at the past, at the history of cinema, how the history of cinema affects and influences not only the movies that we see today, but how we look at them. So maybe um, give me, give us and our audience a sense of what makes a good retrospective. I guess we we tend to think about the retrospective at the New York Film Festival differently than we do uh, our year-round programming. Uh, you know, on our on, in our Cinematheque, we're doing retrospectives and uh, historical surveys and, you know, contemporary surveys and what have you uh, all year. And that that's kind of its own uh, puzzle to, to figure out. Um, the festival is a slightly uh, different beast, of course, because uh, the retrospective is going to be... The films in the retrospective are screening um, alongside... Uh, uh, new films, you know, films that are having their their New York premiere. So um, it suddenly becomes kind of important to contextualize the the new work by uh, by showing o- old work that's in some way kind of sets the table for uh, for what we're seeing now. And um, uh, in the case of this year's retrospective, it's uh, not just kind of you know an, an aesthetic origin story for uh, cinema. It's also a technological one because, um, well, I, I guess I can talk about uh, that in a second when we're, when we're talking about the retrospective uh, uh, itself. But um, I don't know. There's also there's also some in, intuition uh, involved, sort of what, what feels like it would be kind of a nice change up uh, for the audience. Um, if someone you know uh, is watching, seeing all these new films, and uh, they're they uh, they're jonesing to see uh, something old, something familiar, something old and not familiar, uh, you know, it's about sort of providing uh, nice uh, options for NYFF attendees uh, on that front. But it and I should also note that uh, there's always uh, synergy between um, the retrospective section, the revivals. Uh, section where you know it's that that's not thematically or historically unified, but it's uh, but they still they still go together in some way. And in the in in the case of this year, uh, you know we're showing a film in the revival section, William Wyler's Dodsworth, which we might have shown in the retrospective had there not been a new restoration of it that kind of merited its own standalone. Uh, slot in the revival section. So, and that film for those listening will be on Thursday, October tenth. That's at eight forty-five in Alice Tilly Hall. Mm-hmm. Before we get to that retrospective, maybe um, highlight a couple of the other films playing in that revival section since you brought it up. Yeah, um, the we're showing two uh, two newly restored uh, uh, medium length uh, films by Jabril Diop uh, Mambetti. Um, Lefranc and the girl who sold the sun. Um, these are both just extremely beautiful restorations of uh, extremely beautiful films by films from the nineties. From the nineties, toward the end of Mambetti's uh, career. Uh, last year, uh, some people maybe saw the restoration of Hyenas, his second feature. Uh, it's and a filmmaker from Senegal. That's right, and he is uh, the uncle. My uh, our our. I'll have to be corrected if I'm getting this uh, familial connection wrong, but he is the uh, the uncle of Mati Diop, uh, who is um, whose Atlantics is in uh, the main slate of this year's festival. In fact, uh, uh, Mati will will introduce uh, Lefranc and uh, the the girl who sold the sun 
That's on Thursday the 10th at 345 in yeah. the Beale Theater. Yeah. So that I mean um those those films are a really nice way to um uh get into Mambetti's work. Um but uh I would also point to the uh program we're doing of uh, three uh, restored short films by Sergei Perjanov. These are also just very beautiful restorations of little seen uh short films by uh one of the one of the real, you know, uh, masters post-war kind of poetic uh, cinema, but uh, we're all, and that's going to be showing with uh, Farouk Farouk-Zad's the house, uh, the house is black, which was also recently restored, which is one of the most uh, kind of astonishing, you know, uh, short-length sort of poetic films that I can think of. Uh, I actually I haven't seen the program with I haven't seen how the how this combination works uh, firsthand, but um, I have a feeling it's going to be uh, really crazy. So uh, so I'll be there for that. And for those listening on the opening weekend on day three, as we as we send this out into the world, that program is on Monday the thirtieth at four thirty. Let's um, let's I, let's switch gears. And you teased it a minute ago. Let's dig into before we listen to a panel discussion about cinematography. I think that somehow relates to our retrospective. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this year's retrospective? Yeah, well, it's a uh, it's a tribute to the American Society of Cinematographers on on the occasion of its uh, of its centenary. Uh, so, uh, Kent Jones and I organized a uh, not at all exhaustive uh, survey of the history of the ASC. The retrospective is comprised of thirteen films. Um, a lot of them are going to be screening on thirty five millimeter, otherwise uh, sort of notable. Uh, form or uh, copies rather um in any event yeah so it's just an attempt to take stock of you know the first hundred years of uh the society's existence and um just kind of uh you know highlight some some of the key uh, uh key figures uh from the asc uh across the, uh, that century and and you know to kind of point to some of our favorite films that they shot, um, and you know, to kind of strike this uh, this balance between uh, these sort of uh, canonical films that are just you know some of the most like undeniable uh, examples of American uh, cinematography, uh, but then you know also some also some uh, some deep cuts and and kind of interesting uh, weird weird things that uh, again kind of fits in with. Uh, the sort of principle I was talking about earlier about providing like a nice alternative for uh, for uh, NYFF attendees. Yeah, it's an eclectic selection uh, in a really exciting way. Maybe give us a couple of highlights of both those canonical choices and also some of those deep cuts. Give us a taste of what we might, uh, what yeah. folks might have a chance to check out this week. Well, um, one of the biggest, I guess one of the sort of best known and, uh, you know, most storied, Films in the retrospective is the uh, the Godfather Part Two, uh, shot by Gordon Willis and um, and directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who will be hosting. But uh, I believe he won't be at that screening, but he will be around the festival. Uh, yeah. That's on Saturday, October fifth in the evening. Yes, and we're pretty excited about this. We're going to be showing uh, an IB uh, Technicolor print of the Godfather Part Two. Um, what does that mean to a layperson? Yeah. It uh, it's a specific uh, Technicolor process that um, uh, was discontinued uh, uh, with the Godfather Part Two um, in the uh, 
yeah, in the early 70s. And then um, it, uh, yeah, so technically I couldn't, I couldn't tell you how it works exactly, but I can tell you how it looks, which is uh, mm. uh, extremely uh, beautiful, rich, uh, vibrant colors. Uh, yeah, it's really one of the most sort of like gorgeous um, uh, forms of celluloid that I can I can think of, but it uh, even I, if someone has seen The Godfather in the past, they very likely have not seen it this way. Yeah, I mean, unless they saw it in its initial release in 1974, because um, this the print we're showing will be an example of what audiences at the time saw, which mm. I think is um, pretty exciting. I should also note that it's uh, it's also known as a dye transfer, mm -hmm. uh, which might be a more familiar way to refer to it for mm -hmm. some people. So yeah, that's like that's an example of sort of a well-known canonical thing. And then a, 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 as for a deep cut, um, uh, how about uh, The Hard Way? Uh, um, Vincent, Vincent Sherman sort of... Uh, crazy musical melodrama shot by the great James Wong Howe. Um, you know, there are a few, there are a few uh, cinematographers in the, in the series who have like hundreds of mm -hmm. credits because they were part of the studio system and the, the, the work seems to have been uh, uh, ample uh, during that period. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, James Wong Howe uh, just seemed like a really central uh, person to include in uh in this retrospective and uh that's a really i think that's a really crazy film that's not i don't i i don't hear people talk about this film hardly at all so being able to show it in this context and kind of make the case for it as like a really spectacular example of uh of uh, cinematography is um you know uh interesting i guess Thanks for sharing uh, some of those insights. I encourage our audience, anyone listening, to visit filmlink.org to check out the full list of films playing in the retrospective and also in the revival section. As a final question, Dan, maybe this is a little bit more about process, but um, it might be worth sharing with those listening just to understand the, the, the mechanics of putting together a show like this. And maybe folks don't always realize the sort of heavy lifting that a programmer or a curator has to do today to actually um, track down a print. I, I would imagine there maybe were films that you wanted to show that you simply couldn't, mm -hmm. or that films that were showing at this festival that um, were maybe near misses and we almost didn't, you weren't able, you weren't able to do that, yeah. get, to get to get the print. So maybe just speak a little bit to the challenge today of that's facing curators like yourself who were aiming to, to mount shows like this that look back at the history of cinema. Yeah, we're constantly thwarted by uh, just, um, you know, the, the lay of the land where, where, where prints are, whether there are uh, still, you know, good extant prints for films that we want to show and so on. But I guess, it, yeah, it starts, it starts with this kind of fluid or virtual kind of conceptualization stage where we come up with uh, the list um, and we argue about the list <laughs> and... Um, we get really mad at each other about the list and then we make up about the list and then we, we have the list and then, um, and then it, uh, you know, it, then it falls, uh, to us to sort of go out, uh, in the world and try to find, uh, copies of the films. But, you know, uh, in some cases, like for instance, in this, in the retrospective this year, there's some films that, you know, we, we included maybe not not just because we knew that there was a very interesting or kind of appealing print that we wanted to show, but that is certainly a consideration. 
And yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what to, what else to say about this. Like uh, the the process uh, beyond that is just kind of um, it's kind of about uh, you know drawing on your relationships with uh, you know the studios, uh, film archives all over the world, uh, private collectors. Uh, you know, um, and just trying to, yeah, just create like a, this assemblage of objects that somehow um, becomes a, a film series. So. Well, again, we invite uh, anyone listening to this podcast to please check out some of the films that Dan and his colleagues have, have are presenting in these two sections, the retrospective and the revivals. But for the remainder of this podcast, let's listen in on a panel discussion about cinematography. It's moderated by David Schwartz, who's a former chief curator from the Museum of the Moving Image, along with three cinematographers, Rodrigo Prieto, Ashley Connor, and Chris Teague. Dan, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Eugene. With 59 Primetime Emmys and 30 Academy Awards, HBO Documentary Films has been bringing audiences a full spectrum of stellar, non-fiction programming by acclaimed documentary filmmakers for decades. Dive into the year's most compelling documentaries and get ready for the powerful films to come. Stream the stories that matter, including The Case Against Adnan Saeed, The Inventor, Emmy Award-winning Leaving Neverland, just to name a few. And look out for the exciting new films coming soon. Only on HBO. Sure. And um, hopefully if we do well, we can be in the trailer for next year's festival. You know, so. Um, so I want to congratulate uh, Rodrigo for the triumphant opening night film, The Irishman, which played last night. And um, it was amazing to see in Alice Tully Hall, Martin Scorsese launched his career with Mean Streets, which was a movie about a fucked up bunch of young people, young guys. And this film is about a fucked up bunch of old men, you know, old guys. So, um, <laughs> so uh, to introduce the panelists, I wanted to start by showing um, we, we, for the publicity, we have still images of you all working on set. So I want to um, have you tell us what we're seeing. So let's put up the slide of um, Ashley Connor. <laughs> we could bring, oh, yeah. bring the light down a little bit. I love this is a very uh, heroic pose here, but could you tell us what we're looking at? What film? Uh, the movie actually just came out yesterday called The Death of Dick Long. Um, I was shooting in Alabama. Uh, I tend to wear the same outfit every single day. Um, <laughs> a jumpsuit. We were doing a rather uneven dolly shot. We had a very, very small crew. Um, and I was probably scared of ticks. So I took <laughs> my socks. Oh, the, my that's, that explains the socks. Okay. Yes. Oh. Okay. Uh, I think the next one is Rodrigo. Okay. So I... Ex Please uh, explain that machinery over there. <laughs> I think okay, that's a camera. So, yeah, that <laughs> like, is, what is going on there? That is, uh, we called it the three-headed monster. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that we're shooting the, a prison scene. And uh, the thing about the three-headed monster, uh, the central camera is the camera that's capturing the scene. And on the sides, we had, okay, so that's a, a red helium. And we had two uh, Alexa Minis on the sides. The minis were um, witness cameras. 
to capture the information of depth uh, of, of the shots. And this was for the CGI face replacement. And uh, so one of the big challenges was, as you see, it's, well, it is a monster. Uh, all of the cameras in one head. So we had to figure out how to make it lightweight enough and not too crazy big to be able to manage the camera and to be able to have it in a remote head and you know and things like that. So I tested and tested and tested, uh, you know, to to make it uh, feasible to make to be able to do the shots. Mm. But in this scene in particular, uh, we we had uh, we shot the the scene. It's a dialogue uh, between Hoffa and Tony Pro. Uh, we shot it with three cameras, and so one camera is a two shot, and the others are the overs simultaneously. So. Essentially, nine cameras wow. shooting the scene, <laughs> and uh, so in each camera has a focus puller, and you know, and the monitors, and it was pretty insane. So that's that's what we're doing. <laughs> and you just work with one camera and, and ticks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have ticks, but this kind of ticks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chris, uh, let's let's look at Chris on set. Um, I actually love that you're looking at, at paper. It seems I so know. old fashioned. I, I'm actually surprised. I'm, I've switched to the iPad now, so this is. Uh, this is a, <laughs> what are you this What are you older. looking up? Uh, these are the sides for the, the morning the, or for the day's shoot. This is on Russian Doll. Uh, this is at the Horseshoe Bar uh, at uh, in the East Village. This is what I do every start of every day. I look at this and remember all the <laughs> shit that we have to do and how <laughs> hard it's going to be and uh, what what the biggest obstacles are going to be and all that yeah okay uh, okay great so thanks for that we can bring the lights up a bit so um you know so so the way we're structuring this what i want to do is i describe this as a show and tell and we have two clips for each of the uh, cinematographers and um so we're going to run the clips with um with the sound so track turned down so you could feel free to talk during the clips and talk about what what we're seeing on screen what you're doing um and we'll have some time at the end uh, you know for questions and a broader discussion i do want to say at the outset that rodrigo um who was very generous to be here this morning because it was i don't know when you went to sleep it couldn't have been that long ago <laughs> yeah, yeah didn't get much sleep okay <laughs> it's a long film and it ends yeah so um <laughs> Uh, has to so Rodrigo has to leave at, at noon to go to the like right to the airport mm -hmm. to go out actually to an American sided cinematography event in Los Angeles. That's right. So it's not rude if you leave at noon. So <laughs> we might go uh, the program might go a little bit longer. Um, so uh, the first clip that we're going to look at is uh, Ashley's work from Madel Madel Madeline's Madeline. Uh, the Josephine Decker film, um, which is a wonderful movie. I hope you've all seen it. Um, and it is, um, I guess, just in terms of describing the film, I mean, it's a film that's very much, very fluid in its style. And it's a film where, you know, you're following the narrative, but what you're really following, I think, is the, the emotions of the characters. It like, determines a lot of what we see. So do you want to say anything about the film before we run the clip? Uh, should we just launch into I think it? Let's jump in. Okay, so we'll jump in, and then you can talk while while the clip is running. So let's yeah. let's go. Yeah. Okay. Might... Yeah, yeah, you, you can. Okay. Yeah. Um. So I mean, the movie. You know, I kind of in school studied a lot of experimental film, and I'm inspired by a lot of artist working in that realm. Um, this specifically, she's sort of talking about a dream that she has. And a lot of the movie takes place um, 
from Madeline's perspective and we kind of enter her perspective a lot. And so this one specifically, it was really about being with her, being of her, having the camera feel like you're an active participant within the scene and it kind of, I was, you know, Josephine's films to me are more visceral than they are uh, anything else. So it's really about making the audience feel the dream as opposed to just seeing it. You know, we're, uh, speaking of low budget, this film is incredibly low budget. Uh, so it's not like we can light the entire space. We're using a lot of natural light. We're kind of playing to our strengths. A marker of my work with Josephine has kind of been this concept of an uneasy focal plane. Um, and so, you know, the first two films we did were on DSLRs, which was, you know, a different way of storytelling. Uh, and this one, I said, I can kind of do this. I'd been working on this strange rig since uh, college. Uh, and my wonderful AC is here, Will Castellucci, uh, for helping me make it. But um, I basically wanted to create like the gooeyest image I could. And uh, mm. I often described it as like melting it. Um, and I think that's it. Great. Yeah. Cool. Great. Beautiful. <laughs> And could you just talk a little bit about about like the setup for the scene? Because you're it it feels like you're shooting it in a very free way and capturing moments, but the lighting at the same time feels very beautifully worked out and and yeah, not haphazard. Yeah, I mean, Josephine, the way she kind of works is more. Uh, the actors are improvising a lot more. They have guidelines, but. Um, you know, she kind of came from a mumblecore background, and to me, that was the antithesis of everything that I went to school to kind of study. And I don't mind low budget, but to me, it has to carry a sense of cinema in the greater sense. Um, and so when we started collaborating, it was really just, you know, she kind of let me explore the places that I wanted to within the scenes. And she's still the kind of only director I've worked with who is very excited by um, the dangerous aspects of not knowing what you're gonna get. Um, and for this, you know, it's, uh, the whole film is very elliptical. You kind of enter her world and then reality kind of falls away and you're very mm. much experiencing potentially a mental break. Mm. Uh, yeah, so. I don't know. And uh, and just before we go on to the next clip, is there anything you could say about like how you're working with the actors? Of course, it's Josephine's job to really work with them, but you yeah. you also have intimate relation. Yeah, I mean, I always call it a pas de deux. You know, mm. I'm speaking with them, I'm speaking of them. You know, I don't know where they're going to go, so it really is on me to kind of listen to what their bodies are doing, and that's sort of why you know. Uh, Will, again, I'll call him out, uh, is an incredible focus puller. And I'm not an easy person to pull focus for because I'm so active. And <laughs> it's not like we're giving marks. It's not like we're doing blockings. We're just letting kind of people explore. So it is a difficult job. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Will. <laughs> okay. So uh, the next um, clip we're going to look at is uh, Chris Teague's work on The Mend, the uh, terrific movie by John Magary. Is John here, by the way? Yeah, he's right up there. Okay, hey, John. great. So thanks for coming, coming down. From, 
uh, Uptown. So uh, this is uh, a, a really great uh, film, primarily about a relationship between two brothers, and it's set in uh, the Hamilton Heights neighborhood, Uptown. And um, a lot of the film is set in this sort of cramped apartment, but actually the scene we're going to see is a nighttime scene in a park. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess we'll... Why don't you, do you want sure. to do the same? Yeah. Uh, that's, that's actually a good use of that chair. <laughs> um, I actually did bring a... If you want to use this, I brought sure. a laser. I've spent $12 on a laser pointer. <laughs> so let's let's put it to use. It's that little orange button. On the, okay, so if you want to use that, I'll get my money's worth. We'll see an from, from, um, <laughs> or if anybody in the audience wants to use it. Uh, okay, so let's run, uh, we'll run the clip from the men. Okay, yeah, like David said, most of this movie is in a, a small apartment, so it was fun to have an opportunity to kind of open up the world, uh, particularly with this scene. It's definitely, uh, for our very, very low-budget movie, a very ambitious thing to do, to do a night exterior in a park with no kind of existing lighting. So we had to be very smart about where we were pointing the camera and what we were looking at and how we were going to be able to light it. And what I love about this is, I mean, you can hear it with the music, like there's this kind of we're kind of entering a magical world here with these two drunken brothers uh, arriving on a onto a, a film shoot, which is such like a classic New York experience. Um, and it was, you know, it was an opportunity to play with all the kind of elements of what you might have on a film set, like uh, colored lighting and fog and smoke and just really, you know, really push it. Um, <laughs> It makes, I just kind of want to watch the scene because it's so funny. Um, Where are you shooting? It's a movie. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Go for Jonah. <laughs> Go for Jonah. Yeah, copy that. Locking it up. I got a couple of guys here that we're holding. They're cool. That's cool, man. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> hey, actually, just do me a favor and just hold off on lighting that up. What? There's thick fucking fog everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fog machine stopped working, I think, halfway into shooting the scene, so that was fun, too. But yeah, I remember scouting and trying to find, you know, a location where we could, you know, build this world, show, like, where can we see a film set? Where can, where can we, on our budget, create something that looks like a real film set and then also have our film shoot make it feel like it's kind of far away we're seeing it through you know through this forest like it's this kind of magical experience <laughs> yeah we, we really killing ourselves for these guys they're really making it happen I'm just ready to get some sleep you know you're ready for some sleep what you just said you're ready for some sleep what are you four years old you want me to warm you up a bottle <laughs> Just in terms of accomplishing it, I mean, trying to be as simple as possible, basically picking two backgrounds that worked for us. This, this kind of wooded backdrop here and then down the hill where the film set was and trying to limit what the world that we were seeing so that we didn't have to light up the whole park because we really couldn't. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Ah, oh, thanks. Okay. <laughs> so
So, uh, so Chris, I, I have to ask you this, Chris. I read, I was reading like interviews with you, and uh, particularly about this film. And um, there's a passage where you say that you had just gotten married, uh, and your um, the honeymoon was uh, like overlapping with the shoot schedule, and so your wife went on the honeymoon, and oh you did. God. You um, <laughs> so I'm so glad you brought this up. Yeah. <laughs> I know, this is now the Oprah show. Or, or, uh, I'm going yeah. to turn this into a, a, a positive story. Um, <laughs> when, I, when I came down to New York City to, to interview for Columbia for film school, uh, I was so entranced by the program and the possibility that I might be living here and working here. Um, I had this image in my head of one day I'm going to be working on these tiny, really passionate indie films, and I'm going to be sleeping next to my camera. Like, that's how intense it's going to be, you know? <laughs> and so you fast forward uh, seven years, and I'm, I'm sleeping on the floor of John and Minna's apartment, waking up next to C-stands and, and sandbags, and getting uh, photos from my wife of her walks on the beach in Hawaii where she had to go on our honeymoon without me because we couldn't cancel uh, any of our reservations. Um, so, you know, the dream came true, in other words. It really, it really came true. Um, and so what, what could you t I talk about what, like, what drew you to the project? I think this was John's, was it your first feature film directing? Yeah. Yeah. You were described as a film, I know. Okay. Yeah, okay. I mean, we're we're old friends. We both went to school together, okay. so it was uh, it was such a fun collaboration and like a natural collaboration. It was, it was so great making um, <laughs> movies with your friends from school because you have such a history together personally and also just a library of movies that you watch going through school that inspired you. So, you know, there's less of you know when I work on a project now, there's a real. Uh, effort to kind of get to know each other and to get to understand each other's aesthetic sensibilities and interests and stuff and try to get on the same page where with school there was so there's just so much of that already built in yeah uh, and I just want to ask uh, one thing that we'll go on to next clip but um, we were not we weren't able to see any of the apartment scenes but could you talk about like the challenges of shooting you know there's some scenes there's a uh, party scenes and the scenes with a lot of people in this very cramped space and what were some of the challenges of shooting that yeah i mean i, I guess everything you, you'd expect is just you know lighting and and fitting a camera in a really tiny space but i think how we were smart about it is we knew right off the bat i mean this was going to be the most challenging thing in the in the whole project and so that was the first thing that we shot listed and and you know story john had storyboarded a lot of it and we kind of broke it down and and just broke it down into its elements and you know the more you start to break it into pieces the the simpler it becomes but i think there was the real challenge of how to make it not look the same over and over again and um i think that just goes back to treating each scene as its own thing and and letting that kind of inform how you shoot it and and you know trying to use this this space as best you can and and it's written really smartly where it's there's a lot of night work there there's a lot of day work and then there's a power outage so that creates a whole new look for the space so it allows us to kind of explore new things okay. great thanks okay well uh Rodrigo, you are now in the in the thick of a amazing collaboration this uh irishman was your third feature with martin scorsese um they've all been quite different um so could you talk about we're going to see a clip from silence um, I guess maybe just I, I want to ask you sort of in general, I know that Scorsese 
you know, does storyboards prepare, like really has a very clear idea shot by shot of what mm -hmm. he wants to do. Um, yet, you know, you're brought in to do your work. So what's, what's basically the, you know, how would you basically describe the collaboration? Well, um, he doesn't do storyboards that much anymore, but he does shot lists and and uh, and on the script, and so he uh, does jots down annotations, sometimes little diagrams, sometimes little drawings mm. on the script itself, and it's hard to read. It's really hard to decipher, <laughs> but that becomes my bible, and and I get a photocopy of it. But he does explain it all to me. So we spend a couple of days where he's just translating everything. What is what is that, Murray? What is close up? Oh, okay, close up, close up. You know, so. Uh, uh, that's basically, and, and sometimes he'll have separate pages with drawings. So he will not storyboard uh, with drawings the whole scene, but he'll have key frames or key things that he saw, very basic, you know, drawings. But uh, so, yeah, in fact, in this clip there, it, it is based on one of his drawings. Okay, great. So, um, so Silence is, uh, you know, a, a different kind of film for him. There's a lot of exteriors. He's really known for the city, shooting in, in city environments. Um, you had just done... Wolf of Wall Street, like it's hard to imagine two more different films. But um, so, what was? Um, could you? I just talk about like what the idea was, or, or you know, your sort of plan was for for Silence, for the look of the film, and then working in a in a situation where you're really affected by nature every, yeah. every day. This you know, mud, mud and yeah. sunlight. And, it's interesting because Marty uh, doesn't consider himself at all a nature person. Right. And uh, <laughs> he even says that uh, growing up in the tenements, you know, in Little Italy, and he would not even know where the sun would be. He spent a lot of time inside because of his asthma and all that. And he'd just look out his window. And that's why he says that he likes top shots because that's the way he, he used to see, uh. you know, life happening in, in, in his town growing up. But... Um, so then uh, when a movie like Silence, where it's so much about nature, uh, he from the beginning told me, listen, I don't, I don't understand the way the sun moves. I don't know what south <laughs> is or what, you know? So, so I, it, it was funny the way I had to, okay, Marty, so we, we have to shoot in this direction first because whatever it may be, that's east. And okay, Rodrigo, whatever, you figure that out. But um, so for, for Silence, uh, uh, for me, a big part of it was a, um, harshness of the elements it, it's uh we didn't want it to be a a beautiful nature film uh even though the places we shot in taiwan the places might you know be beautiful but we didn't want to enhance that in any way i used uh these uh, anamorphic lenses but instead of using you know older anamorphic lenses with their beautiful distortions and these things i, I went with actually uh, a modern set of anamorphics that are very sharp and and dry and clinical in a way, you know, yeah. master anamorphics. And, uh, but the, I, I thought that was, uh, that was good. Cause even reading the novel, it has a sense of the heat and the flies and the discomfort. Yeah. So that was, uh, I think a big part of trying to get this look. Okay. So let's, uh, so let's roll the, yeah, we'll roll the clip. I'll, I'll that go we to have. The chair. Uh, yeah. Go to the chair, please. <laughs> Okay, so this this scene we shot in a little uh, meadow uh, in in a park. It's actually a, a park in Taiwan, in Taipei. Uh, and the challenge was that Marty drew this uh, thing very much like this, with uh, uh, shadows and lines going through it. And uh, the challenge for me was that it also described in the script that when he saw the interpreter, which is the other character you'll see in a second. The sun is, uh, he's blinded by the sun. That's actually in the script. 
So, uh, you know, so that that meant that I had to have, you know, create a light source of the sun behind the interpreter. But the location really didn't have any way of bringing in, a, you know, a, a condor or any sort of thing like that. So, and we shot the scene previous to this right outside, so I couldn't have any lighting gear uh, there. So I actually was lucky that there was a branch on the tree behind where we were able to hang a light. So the big challenge was I needed a light that was bright enough to feel like sun and be bright, as bright as the sun, and yet light enough to be able to hang it from a branch. So it was also pretty polemic because, you know, there's a national park and this and that, you know, but so I was also pretty scared of, of if it was going to feel like sun or not, you know, and you don't know until the day you're shooting and you actually turn on the light and, you know, but if it doesn't work, it's too late. You just have to go with it. So um, this is, I think, also an example of putting the character of Rodriguez, Andrew Garfield there, and he feels he's uh, enlightened, literally. He feels he's with God. So that made sense to me to put the, the sun on him, right? To, to, and I, it's a theme that I continued on the film, to have him be lit by the sun and, and others be in the shadow. So that was also uh, you know, part of the theory behind that. Great. Okay. So go back here. OK, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So um, we are going to move along. Our next, uh, the next clip that we have is is uh, from a music video. So you know, I think we know, if, you know, usually associate cinematographers with their feature films, but there's a lot of other types of work, including music videos, and you've done a fair fair amount. So could you talk a bit about like what you get out of music videos and what you like about them, and then we'll go into the, uh, we're going to see a P, the opening of the um, Angel Olsen. Uh, video for Lark. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, you know, I like to do movies and I like to do music videos. I'm not so much a commercial DP because I think, you know, I don't like capitalism that much. Um, <laughs> but uh, so for me, you know, when I'm working between films, I still find music videos a place where like people are still willing to uh, take risks and explore images and do different things because the stakes are so much lower. Um, Angel is somebody who I've been collaborating with uh, for seven years on a bunch of her videos when I'm available. Um, and so for this album cycle, I kind of came in and shot and directed them only because I understand I can do things kind of differently. So this video, um, you know, maybe we can start like 30 seconds in. Oh, okay. Well, it's queued, oh, wait. Up. Well, it's queued oh, up from the beginning. Okay, cool. I'll get to the drone okay. part. That's okay, we're just watching the first minute and a half. So. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I guess let's, yeah, let's watch it. Okay. So we're gonna... um, Angel songs tend to in my mind, uh, carry a lot of weight and movement. Um, and this one, you know, whatever the narrative kind of of the song is this woman, she like is finding herself again, leaving, uh, leaving a bad relationship. So I sort of guided the video being like, okay, sure, we'll have you like have a vague relationship, but I don't give a fuck about that guy. Um, <laughs> and you know, for her, for us, it's so intimate because 
you know, Angel's a musician. I don't think that we'll get to the part where she cries, but she gives a great performance in this video. Um, but I can kind of talk to her on a different level than most people who I work with, because I can ask her to do things that I know that she's capable of, but maybe isn't always asked to do mm. as a performer. Um, so, you know, this whole setup, whatever, woman on the run. And then it's funny, Film Comment asked me to do a podcast about drones. And I was like, I fucking hate drones. I hate drones so much. They're the bane <laughs> of my existence. And like everyone just wants a fucking drone all the time. So I agree with that. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this one, I was like, if I'm going to use a drone, I'm going to make it psychotic or like more in my world. Um, <laughs> so I wanted it to be a little bit more exciting than just what I normally see drones used for. Uh, <laughs> oh. Cut okay. off Sorry. before the... That's a tease. I know, I know. Well, you can yeah, yeah. watch the rest of the video. You can online, okay? Yeah, it's on... Um, <laughs> right now. No, yeah. uh, but, you know, yeah, for you can me... You watch it on, the rest of it on your phones right now. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, a marker of my work is being on the level, being with people human intimacy, ways in which humanity speaks to each other. And, you know, for me, that's through cinema yeah. and images. Um, and so drones have always felt like a tool that disengages from that and isn't something that I've always been interested in. So yeah. Angel really wanted a drone. And I was like, okay, <laughs> if, you, <laughs> if you want a drone, I'm going to do it my way and not you know, and the guys were like, you really want this? I was like, yeah, go through, like, just hmm. silly stuff that yeah. I normally wouldn't do. <laughs> okay. The drone disclaimer. So. <laughs> okay. So um, the next clip is, so is um, from Russian Doll, a great series that was on Netflix. And, uh, Emmy winner. Emmy winning. Uh -huh. Okay. Um so this, I, one of the things that I love about the series is just the, the different look of New York City that it creates. And it's, um, you know, it, and it also has a, a sort of magic style to it. Um, so could you talk a little bit of, and about how you like define and set a look for a series when there's going to be different, you know, different directors of episodes? And Yeah, I mean, I think we were... Um it's different on every show, but with this one, I mean, I, I came on board where there was already a, a lookbook that had a lot of great reference images in, in it. And then the production designer, Michael Bricker, came on and brought, uh, you know, his references and I brought mine. And then they all got sort of synthesized, synthesized into this one document um, that talked about, you know, color and light and shadow um, tone, um, a lot of different things. And that became our Bible, you know, for all the department heads. And we gave it to, gave it to my gaffer, my colorists, you know, operators and everything. And, um, it was, you know, you always have that where you kind of talk about the look and the feel of a show, but to have a document that I thought was so specific and had such great imagery in it, I, it felt like it really got us all on the same page, um, very quickly. And then I used that as, um, references for the color palette of the show. I pulled little squares of color from a lot of the images and then we would kind of, um, you know, dial our lighting in to match those colors or pick gels that match those colors or our colorist would kind of, you know, try to fit it into that, that framework or, you know, give us a kind of uh, departure point. And then in addition to that, we had, we were fortunate to have this kind of hero location, this set, um, the, mm -hmm. the loft, uh, apartment set that, um, you know, was our, our sandbox that we could build from the ground up and then, 
you know, designing that and thinking about every single corner uh, and element in that space really informed uh, the look of the rest of the show. It was it became this kind of exciting challenge to take this thing that we had full control over and figure out how to bring it out into New York City um, mm -hmm. and, and kind of match it in some in some ways or, you know, diverge from it when the, the story um, uh, required it. Yeah. Okay, great. So let's give uh, a short clip from the from this so we yeah. could run the Russian doll clip. Yeah, so this is in this is in our our uh, apartment set, and for me, you know, doing coming from indie features and stuff, I hadn't really done much work on sets before, so it was a little bit scary for me because there's always this challenge of like, how do you make it look like a real space? You know, because you're building it from the ground up, you don't have anything to work with, and you kind of have to imagine what that space might feel like. So it's exciting, but it's also super challenging. And then you had this other you know thought in your head where, well, I could put lights everywhere in the ceiling if I wanted to and, and put them wherever I want and just turn them off and on. But then when you start to think about what that looks like, it starts to look like a, you know, a TV show or a sitcom, you know, everything lit from above it. It's very easy and makes things faster, but it doesn't look like real life. So we ended up not hanging that many lights up on the grid there, um, just uh, accents here and there, and then working mostly with practicals to kind of fill the space with highlights and color and then, you know, uh, and then lighter actors and kind of treat it that way. Yeah, and it it, um, it really feels like you're like it's a very close collaboration with production designer, costume designer in this series. Like there's a way that the look. Yeah, is so absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's it was such a a, a gift to have um, th those talents on board and and just to have really great conversations with them. And and I think Michael Burke, the production designer, has a great um, sense of light and space. And and so it was. Uh, sometimes with production designers, I feel like it's they kind of keep you at arm's length and they're like, well, I've got my ideas, you know, yeah, talk to me. Or there's this thing that happens where you, you start and you're like, let's talk about it, let's talk about it. And then they're like, well, it's a little too early, let's let's not talk about it yet. And then you get closer and they say, let's talk about it. And they say, well, we're kind of too far down the road already. You know, I think there's, there's been a, things are already kind of set. I don't have time to do all that stuff. And, and with this, it was very much like we were every day, you know, we were kind of sharing ideas and stuff, you know. Great. And, um, you know, this was a, a relatively classic, Look, classic looking scene, like compared to a lot of the series, which is a bit more surreal and, and weird, <laughs> for lack of a better word. So, could you, I mean, talk about maybe some, like some of those scenes and sort of the surrealism? That the yeah, sure. Has. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun for me to look at this show and then also the scene from The Men because there are parallels where both are kind of grounded in New York City and, and have, we really relied heavily on. Uh, things that we love about the city and, and staging things within the city, but then looking for points of departure, points of like things that we could, you know, enhance or make kind of cinematic or uh, like dreamlike, you know, and, and, and both projects and, and color and the lighting was a big part of that and, you know, picking great locations and um, how we move the camera. I mean, it's just a lot of like exciting dynamic camera movement in, in both of these things. It was you know, again, I, I feel like the camera movement is more, I guess it's about creating a world, but for me, it's, it's back to that thing of like treating it, uh, focusing it on character and, and the shape of a scene versus the overall feel of the, of the show or, or the thing, like kind of anchoring it in, uh, in the trajectory of a character within a per certain moment or, yeah. you know, a certain arc within an episode or something like that. Um, and I think this is something that all three of you do in your work is, is work in a way that's, that's very, 
there's a subjectivity. There's a way that all of you go inside the minds of the characters. And in Scorsese's films, I feel like he often his films are often very subjective. Yeah, I guess. I, yeah, we talked about it also a moment ago. In, in The Irishman, the, the look of the movie is film. And uh, that was always intention. And uh, so we shot whatever we could on film, which might be about 40 or 50 percent of the movie. Um, and uh, of course, it's it's a memory, uh, most of it, and uh, emulated uh, still photography um, stocks like Kodachrome, Ektachrome for different eras. But um, so that's also why we I, I felt we needed that uh, texture of like motion picture film. So I, I made Pablo Hellman from uh, ILM promise me that he would match all the things that we had to shoot on digital. Uh, but it's still, it was pretty tricky, especially in the color timing to massage the digital to you know come a little closer to the look of film. But certainly the last section of the movie where there's no CGI is all film. And uh, I think you kind of feel it, but, uh, but still, um, I think they did a pretty good job matching. And I think it, it, it comes together, but uh, there is a feel, a different feel to the ending. And, and you, when you see it, you, you might notice it, and that's all actual motion picture film, negative. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask one thing, and then do the rest will be audience questions. But because we're doing this um, retrospective of 100 years of the ASC, I'm going to just read the list of films that are being shown. And I want you to say it, like, tell everybody here like what films they pick one or two that like they have to see. So America, America, Dave Chappelle's Black Party, Days of Heaven, Dead Man, The Godfather Part Two, The Grapes of Wrath, The Hard Way, He Walked by Night, Leave Her to Heaven, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, uh, The Passion of Anna, Soldier Girls, and Street Angel. So what titles jump out like from that? McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Without, yeah, that's like my, that's my favorite all time, I think, for cinematography. Yeah. What about it? I mean, um, it, it, it has a texture unlike anything I think I've ever seen. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's so incredible. And it, the, I just think it, you, you feel that the, the film was kind of pushed as far as it can possibly go, you know, in that yeah. era and that time. And it's so exciting to see and, and the way the zoom lenses are used in that, that film are just, it's phenomenal. Yeah. Great. Okay. For me, it's Days of Heaven. Okay. Um, a huge fan of Nestor Almendros. Uh, he was a great inspiration. He is, uh, you know, but since I started being aware of what cinematography was, uh, I used to do super eight movies and I'm just didn't know. You do a movie, that's it. You know, of course you do the camera, right? You have to light it to see something. But I didn't quite understand what a cinematographer did until I read Nestor Almendros' book, A Man with a Camera, mm. and then started seeing his work. And Days of Heaven is an incredible example of naturalistic uh you know, lighting and and it feeling so powerful at the same time. And so that was, for me, a revelation of, uh, you know, how you could make something look and feel authentic and real and yet have guts and power to it. So it's a huge influence to, for that movie for me. Great. Uh, I'm going to go with my favorite, uh, Robbie Mueller, Dead Man, oh, great. Uh, great. who we lost this year. Um, yeah. And Robbie's always been my greatest inspiration, mm. uh, you know, I mean, Demon is incredible work and I think his whole, yeah. all of his work kind of speaks to this patience uh, a cinematographer who really listens in scenes and something that I learned from him that has kind of shaped my world. I read some interview uh, 
maybe in college with him where he talked about that he never moves the camera unless the character moves hmm. and never anticipates the action. And that's something that mm-hmm. I always notice and recognize in his work is that he's really present in ways that not a lot of people are. Great. Okay. Yeah. Some great recommendations. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Any questions? If perhaps you were looking for certain things like for coverage or available light that maybe was not like a huge priority for the director, perhaps. And if, how do you, um, when you're scouting, especially for like low budget, uh, how do you balance like as much as you, you're trying to serve the story, like if there's something you're prioritizing versus what the director prioritizes? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. That's always, it's always a challenge. And, um, you know, with, with the mend, it was such a, such an ambitious movie and and so full of ideas i think the role i ended up playing is like trying to call those ideas down into something that was we we could do with the resources that we had um i'm trying to think with that specific scene i mean you know john and i know each other well i feel like we were on the on the same page a lot i again i think it's like what i said before trying to contain your background so you're not you know, seeing the whole world, the world that you can't really light or light well, you know, and um, that happens a lot when you're scouting with directors and you, you get nervous as they're kind of walking around and looking, you yeah. know, they start, they start looking at other things that you don't want them to look at. And you're like, okay, let's, yes. let's keep it over. Let's stay over here. Uh, they go, this is great here. Right here let's, um, I remember, well, with that and with that scene, I think they, one of the, I mean, a lot of challenges with that, but we had to have this big dolly set up big, big for us at that time, like dolly through the, the weeds, like it had to feel like they were emerging from a, from sort of this no man's land, you know, and, and how do you find that in a New York city park? And then how do you lay dolly track there with, you know, a three person crew and, and, you know, how long is it going to take you and, and all that stuff, you know, and trying to how much screen time do you need uh them walking you know we couldn't do steady cam or anything um so and and again like with those kind of things it's like okay we can spend all this time effort and money setting it up but if it doesn't if it's not long enough to give you the to cover the dialogue you need to cover or tell the story you need to tell then it's all it's not worth it right so that that stuff yeah it, it, that stuff becomes very challenging and it becomes about getting on the same page i guess Okay, go ahead. Um, I have a question um, for Rodrigo because he's the lead. Two questions. The first one, I want to know about the three-eyed monster, um, why you have the two cameras. Um, is it purely technical? And you said something about depth, and I didn't know what you meant by that. And then the second question is, what is it like to work with Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, and Robert De Niro, and what are exact conversations you guys have? <laughs> with who? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Okay. Um, so the two witness cameras on the sides of the main uh, one uh, were one of the main things going into the project was that the actors in, in Scorsese didn't want tracking marks on their faces. So um, what those cameras were shooting was actually infrared. So they had a, a filter to knock out all the light except infrared and then infrared light around the lenses. Which was so those cameras were lighting from the lens with infrared, so that it created a very flat infrared image that saw tracking marks that were put on the actors' faces, but they were only visible to infrared. So we couldn't see them. The, the main camera couldn't see it, but the infrared cameras could. So uh, that's what the computers uh, used to 
track and to mold and to you know mold the, the faces, the CGI faces that then would replace the actual face. So that's why the witness cameras. And uh, so it was a huge endeavor and the whole infrared thing. Anyway, it was a kind of a nightmare. But once we figured it out, you know, it, it's, it was pretty okay. But um, and uh, so okay, so working with these guys, uh, amazing. And uh, one of my favorite moments was on my birthday, my wife uh, got a poster of my favorite movie, Raging Bull, and got them to sign it, you know, so Pesci Scorsese and De Niro signed my poster, so anyway, that was my favorite interaction with them, but, um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, what was incredible for me was certainly witnessing their performances. Uh, was incredible but when i saw it finally come together the movie has you know has all these different you know snippets and many 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 scenes and many things happen uh so of course when you shoot this little scene and you see a performance oh that was that was good that was good oh that was subtle oh that might have been a little too much but you don't know right and then you see it all together it's a this is a movie where it's happened the most to me ever in my career where you go like oh i get it i understand what they were doing these masters you know because you know, when you just do a little piece, it's like, okay. But then when you see, oh, how that little piece adds to this other little piece, plus the other piece at the end, plus this other thing, it's like a lifetime. And these guys really capture that. And that was th truly thrilling to experience that, you know, to see them do it and then to see the result was really something. Uh, I just want to hear a little, like a little bit more about, like, if they have different working styles. And I'm, like, so curious about Joe Pesci. This is a great like different kind of role for him he plays yeah. kind of a boss and and yeah. it seems like i don't know it's 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 an amazing piece of work yeah and really special so well uh one interesting thing was especially for the ad team was managing who got to set first or you know that sort of thing <laughs> and you know trying to get them at the same time and then ooh, but uh you know De Niro's not ready, so don't bring Pesci, let's wait. And, you know, there was all this sort of thing, you know, and they're all friends and they love each other, but there is also that little funny thing, you know, who's more important or not, you know, it was really interesting, <laughs> you know, <laughs> managing all that. But um, but uh, De Niro, for example, he's uh, he's certainly quiet on, on set. You know, they he had a, like a specific tiny little tent with one chair, like the size of one person. And he sat on his tent. That's that's it. He just sat in his little tent while things were ready, and then would come out, and so you knew not to talk to him, right? Not to disturb him at all, you know. But uh, in a good way, you know. He he wasn't, you know, like blocked out from. But but he he just needed to be in in his space, you know. And and Pesci would arrive and be on set and be chatting, you know, with with us and be like, you know, maybe even bad mouthing De Niro. That was a thing he liked to do. Like, oh, come on, you know? <laughs> and and. And and then um, Pacino was he was always with a, a, an iPod. He was listening to to Hoffa all the time. He really? was listening to speeches of Hoffa and, and just memorizing the the cadence and the way he talked. And you know he really got into that. And uh, so and the, the the characters are so different too, uh, and the styles. Uh, so it's it's really amazing to see the difference of say Pesci, who's this sort of contained power, and and then Hoffa, who's this uh, bigger than life man but then how how hoffa becomes this really warm character which i did not expect but it does happen you kind of love the guy and uh and the nero who's like does nothing his face is right in, in, but but you see all these things happening 
but he's do, he's not doing anything. But you you feel it. It's it's incredible. I, I really you know was, was blown away by. Was Pacino um, eating ice cream all the time offset? That's like the big motif in the film. Yeah. The character is always eating ice cream. Yeah, but no, he had only eat it when he had to eat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, I should. Uh, I, it's your. You have to catch a plane. So, um, so I really am grateful for you to be here after um, like an hour of sleep, probably. Too. Like so, thank so you, thanks so much, Rodrigo. And we'll, thank you. Well, great to meet you. And uh, thank you very much. Uh, well, we're not going to badmouth you at all. So. Yeah. So, Eddie, uh, we could take some more questions for, for Chris, Ashley. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, but I guess, like, when, when the director hands you a shot list, um, does it change? How does it, you know, or how does it not change or change when you enter the equation? I mean, I think, you know, every collaboration is very different. I think, you know, what you're bringing is a point of view, and, you know, you talk about lighting you're bringing so much more to than just a shot list and for me it's about having a conversation with the director because you know any amount of prep that they want to give I always take uh, and that can be as abstract as they want to you know I like to go to museums with people or mm -hmm. like listen to music cook a meal but the shot list to me it's like a conversation that you're having with somebody and an approach that you have when you get onto set so everything has to especially if you're working in lower budget it's not like I am ever on set and can control every single situation. And for me, a shot list is a guide because I think it really comes to life when you see actors block. So it's just kind of a question. But, you know, I worked, I shot second unit on uh, Knives Out coming up. And Ryan is like a master at setting up frames. And, but he needs Steve Yedlin to like make those frames come to life. So it's like this true collaboration and watching them was really eye-opening for me to just kind of see these two masters come together and have different kinds of conversations. And, you know, I think uh, for me, I like working with first-time directors a lot because I think the kinds of conversations and the ways that you can push them are very different than maybe like a totally seasoned person. And, um, you know, sometimes I crave like very seasoned directors because <laughs> uh, it's uh. exhausting but you know it's just it's all a conversation I, I was curious about um, that because you've done three films with Josephine Decker like how she evolved I mean she's seen you know it seems like she grew in a lot of ways I mean to have the confidence to do I mean she was always pretty bold in, in her work but she seems to have really evolved as a director uh yeah I mean you know, for somebody like Josephine who came from a performance background, I think, for me, I think everyone has the tools in them to tell a story. It's just how you want to tell it and why. Um, and if you haven't, you know, RIP on Esparta, um, her mm. documentary in the festival is kind of a master class of creativity, a master class of like what it means to make work and why you decide to make work. And, um, you know, I think for Josephine, she has a world that she wants to build. And for me, you know, I started shooting for her when I was 23 mm -hmm. uh, and fresh out of school. And, you know, um, our working relationship has evolved. I didn't shoot her newest film, um, which will come out this year. Um, but for me, you know, it's asking each other to, like, 
walk down a path that we don't know where the path leads. Mm. And that's a little terrifying and not always how I work. But with her, it's very much about the physicality, about the journey, about process. And, you know, she's kind of refined her process over the years and understood how to do that. As she... Okay. Okay. More right over here. Okay, in case you didn't hear, uh, talk about lighting for consistency within a scene and then when you like to break that. It's um, a, a great uh, question, and I feel like my ideas about that are constantly changing or have been changing where um, – you know, I think it's good to walk into a space and have an overall concept. This is where the light's coming from, whether it's a window or a particular lamp or whatever. But then, you know, when you're getting into scenes where you're shooting a lot of coverage around the room, you inevitably get into this point where you're shooting kind of the worst angle for wherever you decided your main source of light was coming from. And you have to make this decision. Am I going to be consistent or am I going to go with what looks better? And can I get away with that? And, and I think Lately, I've been leaning more into the direction of like, let's just go with what looks better. And I'm pretty sure I can get away with it as long as it feels like it's somewhat in the in the territory, you know, or 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 I think it opens up new ideas where, you know, I, sometimes I think uh, too much control is a is a bad thing. And, and, and my most the re most recent project I've been working on has been more about thinking about just lighting spaces and thinking holistically and knowing that sometimes uh, actors might land in light that I wouldn't have, uh, conceived of as being the way that I would have lit the scene if I could have put lights everywhere I wanted to. Uh, but maybe that's not such a bad thing because it contributes to a sense of realism. Yeah. And I think, you know, every project's kind of different. The more flexibility I have in my packages, my lighting packages, and like I can kind of get the gear that I want now, I tend to favor more of like you know, Harris Savitas sort of famously kind of lights from outside and uh, more practically in a lot of ways. And so, like, I've been kind of favoring that. It's like you light the space and then let the space dictate what happens when people move through it. Uh, over here? Yeah. Have, have either of you had um, any experience in shooting color for black and white? And if you do that, um, how to pre-visualize those scenes? I'm uh, yes, I love black and white uh, so much because I think you can light very differently than you can in color. Or at least I feel I'm given more creative freedom to do different things. And uh, when you kind of get down to the basics and gradient between black and white, there's so much to see. And uh, for me, how I've been doing it lately is actually Chris and I share a colorist uh, <laughs> whose work you've seen four clips from, Nat Jenks. Um, but, you know, Nat kind of helps me out when I'm working on black and white. So I put in the LUT that, you know, I'm working with a, cam a digital camera usually that has a, you know, color gamut. Um, and then kind of taking it away and desaturating it. And then you just kind of have to toggle between a couple looks but you're you're previewing that look on you're seeing that on set basically yes yeah, yeah. yes okay right over here um, can you talk a little bit about the impact of sound um on what you do both um the sound of a space and the sound of the speaking voices and um the soundtrack i don't know enough about how these things are made but especially the sound of a space 
Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a great question. I, I feel like having worked so much in television lately where there's so often a mandate to be to have a camera on somebody's face saying the words in the scene for every single moment. Um, I, I love the idea of thinking about sound and, and you know, I think about it um, when you're not on the person's face because you, you know, you're opening up uh, a new kind of dimension to the audience and, and you think a new kind of, I don't know, avenue of communication. That's not just the text, the words that are written on the page. And um, I try to think about that when we're shot listing, like imagining what uh, a certain shot might sound like, you know, to open a scene or to get us into or get us out of a scene or over a certain moment, you know, and, who know? I mean, it's who knows if it'll ever actually end up that way. It's so f- outside of my realm, but it helps me to imagine what the audience might experience. Yeah. Can she address that? Because okay, yeah. I, I thought it was. Okay. I, I thought it was what you, the the first film with the two women, the the sound, the intimacy of the visual, and also the sounds was really was really interesting. Yeah, I think for me, you know, especially on a movie where. You know, I can be more poetic and speak to the poeticism of the scene, the space, the actors. You know, I if I'm operating and I'm quite close to them, I think another marker of Josephine's work is proximity to people. I'm always kind of within arm's reach. Um, so I'm always listening. It's like if I hear somebody move their hand, it's like I want to follow that. I want to, you know, I kind of tend to shoot with both eyes open at some point point during takes to kind of see what they're doing and why I'm hearing a noise. And for me, it's like, you know, maybe my ADD kicks in like crazy. So it's like, I can hear everything. If somebody talks, if a crew member's like, you know, chomping on gum or something, it really distracts me because I'm trying to listen to what they're doing in the scene. Uh, You mentioned you have a colorist in common. I'm interested in how you guys collaborate with the colorist and how early in post, in pre-production uh, does it work? Uh, Nat's been my colorist since my first film. Uh, and I think yeah, potentially first, yeah. with you too. You know, when I, I took a break from making movies to like make money and shoot television, um, which is a depressing aspect of my life, but um, I had to. Um so Nat couldn't really color TV shows because producers have relationships with Post House. But usually I bring him in quite early. We talk about Let's. I tell him what I'm shooting for. I pull reference images. I tell him, you know, I'm also a feelings-based cinematographer. And I use that, like, as a badge of honor where, you know, it's more of, like, how do you want a scene to feel and what do you want the audience to feel during that? So... It's usually kind of, I'm not a DP who like sits in a coloring tent uh, on set. Um, so I use my LUTs as like a more overall wash. Um, and so, yeah, it's just kind of approaching the subject matter from that point of view and saying like, this is sort of my goal. And then it makes her coloring sessions more refined and more about making the whole piece cohesive and come together. But certain concepts, I'm always like, I got to do it in camera. If you want a warmer, I'm going to shoot a warm. If you want a cooler, I'm going to shoot a cooler. And I try not to like do major color shifts in post. 
I think there's an unfortunate misconception with a lot of people in this business that a, a colorist is just someone who's down in the post pipeline who just makes things match and, you know, fixes things. And, um, I think we feel the same way with, with Nat as like a true collaborator and you work with, uh, we work with him like you'd work with any, any other, uh, creative collaborator. And it's, it's so, I haven't worked with a color, another colorist where we're, we are having these conversations before you start shooting. And, and it's, he loves, he loves that dialogue and loves, we love looking at references and he's always talking about things he wants to show me that he's been thinking about and talking about. And so it's always this like constant exploration, which is so useful for me, especially when you're, you know, you're moving from project to project. I don't know how it is for you, but it's, it's sometimes it's hard to, you know, figure out what the next look for the next thing is, you know, or get, get inspired over again and to have people like that who bring you new ideas is, is, is great. Thank you. And my second question, that's okay. Um, how do you guys feel about shooting multiple cameras? Because I think you both operate. Yeah. Oh. And, yeah. <laughs> the bane of my existence. Cool. Um, you know, I mean, shooting for two cameras, you just can't light the same way. You can't be as bold. You're constantly thinking. But even just the idea that there's two cameras on set means that a producer's in your ear being like, so where's that second camera being set up? Like, why isn't it being set up? And I find that instead of creating one really great image, you're sometimes just making sacrifices on two images. And again, I work in like a different world. I'm not on the Irishman. I don't, you know, I don't have that kind of, those kind of tools at my disposal. So you're usually in small spaces. And it always feels like a compromise. Um, you know, we both shot on uh, Broad City, which uh, he did season four, I did season five. Um, and, you know, Broad City is different. It's like, you need two cameras. It's comedy. It's not about me and my work. It's like about them and being funny. And so for a show like that, obviously two cameras make sense, but that you have to like prioritize what the goal is. And yeah, I, I like two cameras when it's uh, when you're leapfrogging, you're setting up one shot and then you're getting something lined up so that you can kind of jump into the next one. And for like efficiency's sake, I think that can be useful. I used to be opposed to it. And and as far as the operator side of it goes, um, I mean, I do love to operate, but I've also um, been lucky to work with some really incredible camera operators. And it's great to have a different level of collaboration where you can um give them the concept and, and the overall concept and have them, uh, hone it in and, and make it, you know, make it work. And then you can focus more on the lighting or focus on what the next setup is going to be and kind of use your energy elsewhere. Um, so I was wondering, uh, as like indie filmmakers, like you're, you're used to doing like a lot of things like by yourself or like with small crews. And as you get like with bigger crews and stuff, like how do you reconcile not, like just like delegating instead of just doing because um, I feel like I have this problem where I'm like, I'll just do it. It's fine. I don't have to tell you to do it. Um, but yeah, delegating is like a big thing that I feel like on bigger sets and it's like a skill that is pretty hard to to refine. I think that's been my, you know, in this break from shooting movies, um, I joined the union and started shooting TV shows and kind of started you know, I shot the pilot for Rami, and that was, like, quite small. Um, and then I've kind of grown and 
on different kinds of projects at different budget levels. And I think it was like very hard for me because I was working with my gaff. I have had the same gaffer since my first paid job, Danny April, and he's like my right hand. And suddenly he wasn't in the union and I couldn't have him. And so our language that we've, our shared language that we built together, you know, I had to suddenly speak to somebody else who was speaking a different language. And that was very difficult for me. And so I think, I feel like I'm just now, you know, after, you know, Broad City taught me a lot. That was my first full season of TV. And, um, you know, that, yeah, delegation is super important and that's part of the job and managing your crews and managing all the people. And, you know, for me, I had a very difficult time refinding collaborators who, like, for me, I'm, I want somebody who can speak about the story. I want, who's not just going to show up and just be a technician. And um, I think that's a very difficult transition. And, you know, now I've realized, like, you kind of have to be your own person in charge of everything. So my approach has drastically changed because now it's like when I travel for work and I go to a new city and I cannot bring my people, I have to be able to make the adjustment myself. And I think that that was a learning experience. Yeah. You become much more of a manager, which is not the, you know, the creative side of things that you were imagined you'd be doing, which is it's definitely a challenge. You're thinking about what, what your, what makes your crew happy or what gets them excited about what they're doing. It's not always the same conversations that you had when you were doing smaller films and you don't, you don't, you know, your crews might not know half of the films that you really like. And then you have to kind of figure out where to uh, meet them. Like what, what gets them excited? You know, is, is it, is it the craft side of things or is it something else? And, and, um, you know, just, just kind of trying to understand where they're coming from and, and hiring being, getting really good at, you know, interviewing and trying to hire the best people or the best fit for your personality. Thank you. You want to go, you raised your hand like you had a good question. So we'll give you the real, the last question. Go ahead. <laughs> um, you mentioned a bit, uh, about uh, in your relationship with Josephine, that she came from a mumblecore background, um, and that just got me wondering: Are there any, uh, I guess, relationships that either of you have had with directors where you felt like um, maybe you were really engaged and interested in the story, but you didn't share the same kind of visual language, um, and how you overcame that? Overcoming it is maybe a stretch. You know, I think. <laughs> Somebody like Josephine, who is so much about process and so excited about the unknown, she's a very exciting director to work with. I think now I've gotten better at interviewing and talking to directors. And you learn, you know, I took on projects where like red flags were being thrown in my face, like left and right. But I was like, whatever, I'll never work again if I don't shoot this movie. And then it's a nightmare and like I'm, you know, shooting myself in the face every night because I'm like, why did I do this when I knew that it was going to be terrible because I didn't get along with the person. And so that to me is just a learning experience. You kind of just get better reading people. And, you know, I try to find directors who I can have conversations with. Like I met with the director in London. I was doing a BBC show um, in the spring and I liked her script a lot. Uh, I thought it had problems, but like, you know, it was a conversation and she didn't want to answer any of my questions. Mm -hmm. And I was like, 
I'm not going to be your DP. Like, <laughs> because I need a director to come to the table. And just because I ask a question doesn't mean that everyone needs to know the answer. But it, in my practice, I need to know certain answers. And I need to be able to talk to somebody on a different level. And, you know, it's like I have another director here, Alex Eden, who I shot her movie. And it's like we slept in the same bed in North Carolina for six weeks. And it was like every single night we're setting up a projector and watching movies together. We're watching Silent Light. We're like looking at all the references. And, you know, it's like I can have different conversations with her. It's just about finding people who you gel with, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I definitely went through a stage like when I got out of film school where I had a big chip on my shoulder and thought I knew everything about cinema and I was working with people who were uh, maybe not super visually minded and, and, it, and it bugged me, you know, because I thought like oh, we're not having the same level of conversation that uh, I would have with my film school buddies and then I kind of had to grow out of that and realize that it's partly my job to kind of get out of them what is inspiring to them and what moves them and they may not know how to articulate it but it's it's up to me to kind of try to f help find that what that is and pull that out of them and maybe you find a lot of it in the script and you find more of it when you're talking to them and looking at movies together and um it's just you know building a library of references and then or or proposing ideas we could you know it could look like this it could look like that like respond to this and tell me what you think and then you know and, and that becomes an exciting role to play once you you know engage with it and and it's just you know there's just different collaborations with different kinds of directors uh, well i really appreciate your time and being here this was uh, great so thank you so much to both of you for being here and thanks, everybody. Have a great festival. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases, the publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education, curriculum, and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org.